It's week 8 of 2022. I'm Smita Nair. This is your weekly fix. I wonder if you're familiar with this statistic. I wasn't. India lost 419 individuals to suicide every day in 2020 the first year of the pandemic. The figure is comparable to official recorded deaths due to COVID-19 for the same period. Psychiatrist Dr. Samitra Pathare informs us. The death by suicide figures, he points out, are in fact an underestimate. Of the 419, 31 were children. Let me say that again. More than 30 children died by suicide every day in the year 2020, an 18% increase from the year 2019. Suicide is the leading cause of death among young people aged 15 to 39 years in India. The data with respect to women is particularly alarming. Indian women accounted for 36% of global suicide deaths among women. According to the Million Death Study, one of the largest studies of premature mortality in the world, one out of 77 Indians above the age of 15 years is at a risk of dying of suicide by the age of 80. Yet, there's very little we hear on the subject in public discourse. A new book, Life Interrupted, Understanding India's Suicide Crisis by Amrita Tripathi, Abhijit Nadkarni and Somitra Pathare is an attempt at correcting that. Let's welcome Dr. Samitra Patare, psychiatrist and director Center for Mental Health Law and Policy onto the podcast. Thanks Dr. Patare for making the time for us. Thank you so much for asking me to join. Thank you. Dr. Patare, what does available data tell us about suicides in India? Particularly, what does recent data show? Well, look, first of all, we don't have a lot of data. Uh, the the only data which gives us a national picture, it has been the National Crime Records Bureau reports which come out every year. Mm. Um, and that is the only data that we get on a regular basis. There have been other studies which are done as a one-off study, uh, but the, the only regular recurring feature that we have in terms of data is the NCRB. Yes. And while there are many problems with the NCRB, uh, what uh, there are a few facts in the NCRB data which one can reasonably rely on because they seem to consistently keep on coming up. Uh, The the first uh, fact is that uh, in 2020, this is the year of the pandemic, uh, suicides in India increased by 10%. Okay. Now that's, uh, you know, since they're following the same methodology for many years, one would imagine that whatever the deficiencies of the methodology are, they are probably persisting throughout the years. So the 10% increase might be a real capture of the increase. I I, I don't think that it'll be less than 10%, if you know what I mean. Uh, It might be more because they didn't capture in their data all of the suicides which happened. Hmm. Uh, So that's one thing which is extremely worrying. And this is worrying because in many parts of the world, especially in the West uh, and uh, in, in North America or in Australia, Suicides haven't gone up during the pandemic. You know, in fact, there are, uh, other than Japan, which saw an increase in suicides, suicides have not gone up in the pandemic. Uh, 
Uh, on the other hand, we know from some previous economic crisis, like the 2008 Greece crisis, when suicides in Greece in the subsequent three, four years went up by almost 20% or so each year for the next three, four years. So clearly, the fact that comes out is that economic crises do cause uh, increase in suicides. Pandemics by themselves, if you take care of the economic crisis, probably do not cause uh, suicides to go up. So, so one of the things that is extremely worrying is that our suicides have gone up while everybody else hasn't. And this is particularly worrying because, you know, India's suicides, uh, India is a, makes up about a third of the world suicides. Uh, about one out of three people who die by suicide is an Indian, while only one out of six or one out of seven global citizens is an Indian. So as it is, we have a high rate of suicides and then our numbers have gone up by 10%. Dr. Pithari, the statistic concerning women is particularly alarming. I read the data and then I shudder to think if this is an undercount, as you point out, as researchers point out, just how high could the numbers be? Indian women die by suicide more often than women in other countries. Indian women account for 36% of suicides by women across the world. Can you talk about this as also what is the gender difference in India? Now, across the world, uh, gender differences in suicide are, are very well known, but, you know, they are actually very stark. So like in the West, uh, the rate uh, of suicides among men is four to five times that of women. You know, it's the gender ratio is four is to one, five is to one. Okay. Uh, in India, that gender ratio has always been very small. It used to be 1.5, 1.6 is to one. And, and over the years has gradually been creeping up so that we are now at about... 2.3, 2 2.4 uh, is to 1. Still much less than the rest of the world. Now, why is this gender ratio low in India? Now, one reason could be uh, that, uh, you know, less men die of suicide uh, versus uh, more, uh, you know, and that's why you've got a lower ratio. Or it could be there are more women dying of suicide and that's why you've got a lower ratio. Hmm. And I think it's more likely to be the latter. And I'll give you an example of, uh, I'll tell you the data which proves that. Uh, if you look at global suicides, then Indians, uh, Indian men make up about 24% of the world's suicides. And assuming we are 17% of the world, the difference is 17 to 24. Mm. Uh, but Indian women make up almost 36% of the world's suicides. So that's like 17% of the world's women versus 36% suicides. So clearly it's more women dying of suicides as compared to the rest of the world. Yeah. If you look at different age groups, the ratio changes dramatically. So under 18, uh, it's actually 0.9, which means there are more girls dying of suicide under 18 than there are boys. Uh, whereas if you look at age groups of 60 and above, the ratio is almost 4 is to 1, which is very close to the Western ratio. Uh, so there are four times as many men as women dying of suicide. So, you know, the, the averages hide a lot of differences that exist between, uh, between uh, genders according to age. Okay. Uh, I'm quoting from your book. In a study conducted by World Health Organization in many countries, including India, 64% of Indian women who had experienced physical violence from their husband or partner had also experienced suicidal ideation. Uh, you, Dr. Patari, have implored the National Crime Records Bureau to specifically investigate the relationship between suicides among women during the period of the pandemic and the experience of violence? 
even before the pandemic okay even before the pandemic there have been enough uh, enough studies from india itself not just from across the world but even from india which show that uh, which suggests that uh, about a third of women uh, who die by suicide have a history of uh, having survived uh, violence you know physical violence or sexual violence mm-hmm. so so one third of women who who died by suicide even before the pandemic uh, used to uh, have an exp- have experience of of uh, violence largely in the domestic sphere right. uh, so that was something we already always had as a problem uh, and and you know i think the pandemic has only exacerbated it there are enough uh, enough uh, studies now during the pandemic especially in the early part of the pandemic when everyone was locked at home uh, which uh, even from the national commission on women i think and and from their national helpline saying that number of calls uh, for domestic violence went up by 100% uh, and and you know there was an increase amount of uh, domestic violence happening so i you know I, i and i know at the moment i can't put two and two together because i don't have enough data but look the number of calls for domestic violence during the pandemic went up there is a lot of data showing that domestic violence increased during the pandemic yes uh at the same time there is now data saying that suicides went up by 10% during the pandemic Hmm. clearly there has to be some link between the two uh and while that's a hypothesis i'm making and and i can only make a hypothesis because i still don't have the data uh is that is the problem that the ncrb does not actually release the raw data you know if you if you wanted to do some analysis on the census data or on the nfhs data for example you can go to the website and download the raw data you know you can run different kinds of analysis on it uh on your own uh and it's all de identified data and you have the raw data to work with uh unfortunately uh, the the ncrb doesn't release raw data uh, so i have no raw data to be able to make those linkages and the ncrb itself does extremely uh, very very simplistic kind of uh, analysis um you know where it assumes that there is one factor leading to suicide so you know for example i mean and that's a problem with their data is how, how do you classify what is the cause of suicide i mean i'll give you an example let's say there is a woman who dies by suicide okay uh and let's say she has a history of domestic violence uh and she's also being treated for depression hmm. now how does ncrb decide in which category will they class her death as sui- by suicide will they class her in the category of oh mentally ill person who died by suicide or are they going to class her as domestic violence and died by suicide because you see they don't they don't uh, put two causes right. every case of suicide is uh, is Uh, attributed to one single cause mm. so they you know you they won't have a they don't have categories where they can say oh but this person would fit into both the categories they won't do that and another issue with the data is uh, that the ncrb does not take into account attempted suicides right that's that's the bigger worry uh, the ncrb data tells you about suicides it doesn't tell you about attempted suicide because no one collects data on attempted suicides and uh, you know across the world uh, attempted suicides are anywhere between 5 to 20 times the total number of suicides now let's take even india's number of 150000 that ncrb came up with but which if you go by the who figures uh, is probably 250000 but let's take the 150000 if you multiply that by 20 um, then that gives you a, a very very high number you know 
it, it gives you a number close to 3 million or so, which means there are about 3 million attempted suicides uh, in the country uh, every year. And we don't really do much about it. Now, why is, is this important? For two reasons. One is attempted suicide is one of the best predictors of a future suicide you know, future death by suicide. So it's actually one of the best predictors. It's the place where you can intervene and try and prevent uh, uh, death by suicide in the future. Hmm. Uh, and the second thing is the the economic costs of healthcare that is required for attempted suicides. Uh, it, it results in all kinds of uh, issues and pushing families into poverty. Uh, so again, attempted suicide is something that we should be uh, talking much more about than we do at the moment. Um, now you've uh, you've repeatedly spoken about what you call the disinterest of policymakers in understanding suicide beyond the narrow prism of mental ill health. Uh, in the book, you talk about uh, the sense of helplessness you felt as a young psychiatrist uh, when you came across the case of Mala. Mala is a you know it's a pseudonym that I use, but it's a true story. Uh, from 20 years ago when I first started practicing as a psychiatrist in India after I returned from the UK. Uh, and she was somebody uh, in the large general hospital that I worked in. She was one of these people who had been admitted with a with a overdose, you know, and she had uh, swallowed some organ or some of these insecticides or pesticide kind of stuff. And so she ended up <clears throat> ended up requiring an intensive care. And so although she came from like 100 200 miles away from pune she had been her care had been transferred and she was admitted to a hospital in in pune uh, in the hospital where i worked hmm. and uh, you know the the the, the challenge uh, with mala was that uh, I, you know as a psychiatrist when we are when i was asked to see her the the challenge is that uh, mala uh, mala was mala had attempted suicide largely because uh, she had been sexually abused by her brother-in-law. Okay. Uh, and the reason she had been sexually abused by her brother-in-law is because she and her husband were trying to have children uh, and failing to have children. And after they had been to the doctor, it turned out that uh, her husband was sterile. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, this was something, and this is something that one picks up as one listens to it over time, and you, you can read it in the book. Uh, and and immediately after that event, uh, when uh, her brother brother-in-law tried to force himself on her, that within a few hours uh, of of that happening, uh, she had attempted suicide. Okay. Um, the the worrying bit for me was that after all of that, when she was being discharged, she did not want uh, to report this to the police. She did not want this made a fuss of because. Uh, as she put it, she had younger sisters who had to get married. And if anything like this happened, then her her, her sisters would not get married. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, this raises a whole host of issues, structural issues about sexual violence, about gender-based violence. Uh, the fact that while everyone says, oh, well, you know, women can complain, uh, women can complain, but is it feasible to complain if you've got social structures where she has to also worry about the fact that she's got younger sisters who get need to get married? Uh, and unfortunately, we could I could never see Mala ever again because uh, the family had given a wrong address. So a month afterwards, when we were trying to look for her for follow up, uh, 
we couldn't find her and so i don't know where mala is if she's alive if she's got children is she happy is she divorced is she still with her husband i have no idea she would be in her late 40s if she's still alive hmm. uh, but uh, uh, but for me as a as a clinician and as a psychiatrist it, it kind of brought home the sense of helplessness that came with it um, you know that that as a as a psychiatrist there was very little that i could offer her Hmm. Uh, clearly telling her why don't you take antidepressants is not going to be a solution right. um and and she was not depressed i mean you know the event happened in the evening and 3 hours later she uh, she took uh, an overdose that's not depression that's that's grief um and and that's normal grief right. uh, and why would an antidepressant help her anyway Uh, so giving her an, or, or telling her why don't i send her send her to a, my counselor and giving her counseling is not going to solve the problem what do you counsel her she's been sexually abused uh, how do you counsel her and what do you counsel her without actually addressing the issue of sexual abuse you know you can't be counseling her without actually then doing something about the abuse that has happened but which she did not want anything done and which the family were not willing to uh, and also they just disappeared uh so i i you know it's that whole sense of helplessness which one lives with for uh, the rest of one's professional career right dr patari i found the chapter not too young to die particularly distressing i am reading from your book suicide amongst children under 18 years rose from 9613 in 2019 to 11396 in 2020 an 18.5% increase nearly double that of the increase in the total population this is a significant spike in suicides in young people uh, has this how can this be explained now that that is extremely worrying yes and, and it's particularly worrying also because uh if you look at the suicides because of exam failures you know the uh, suicides due to exam failures in 2020 went down by 24% hmm. so while the suicides due to exam failures are down by 24% the total number of suicides in children is up by 18% uh when the global number of increase is only 10% so clearly extremely worrying uh kind of data there the absolute number 20 uh, that translates to like 30 35 32 children every day dying by suicide uh now that somehow seems to have not uh created any kind of public uproar uh, which is extremely worrying because you know if there are 30 kids dying of suicide each day you would have thought that our communities would actually talk about it or want something done about it yes uh so why am i saying this is because uh this has been the state of affairs the previous year it was 9000 the prior prior to that it was 8500 so that's the kind of numbers that we have over so many years now consistently hmm. and nothing has happened in fact uh, you know if you again this is a good example of how uh, public discourse has uh, uh not really kept up to date with the facts and figures and data so if you ask the politicians or if you ask pub, public policy makers or you ask the general public why would children under 18 die by suicide and the standard answer you know you will get the immediate first answer they'll give you is that oh it's all this exam pressure you know exam suicides exams are what are causing suicides hmm. uh which is true which is not completely untrue but look at the data properly okay exam suicides only account for about 10% of the suicides they don't account for more than that 
So they don't account for 90% of the suicides there. Because if they did, uh, you know, the, the number of suicides in 2020, for example, exam suicides went down by 24%, okay? While the number of total number of suicides went up by 21%. So exam suicides, clearly exam suicides are a factor. And the fact that in 2020, we had school closures. And so you didn't have exam uh, exams happening. And so suicides went down. It's a very good exam. You know, it's a, it's a great proof in a sense, a proof of the pudding, so as to speak, that clearly our examination system and our academic system uh, does push a number of young people and children to to suicide. So that that, that is not a debatable issue. And, and clearly, Putting in some kind of uh, policy changes will make a difference. You see, again, there the standard response has been, which is what worries me, is like the standard response that has come from governments to that is that in the month of June and July, when there are exam results, they open up these helplines. Hmm. You know, they say, oh, we'll have helplines. If any kids are feeling distressed, uh, then can we, they could call up and we'll hopefully save lives. Uh, whereas if you actually look at uh, what has made a difference and saved lives have been policy changes in the education sector. And, and the Tamil Nadu example is a good example of that. You know, uh, my, my friend, uh, Dr. Lakshmi Vijay Kumar, who's a very well-respected international suicide prevention expert. Uh, Lakshmi has been running a helpline, a suicide prevention helpline for, for close to 30 odd years. And, and they noticed that, you know, they were getting these increased numbers of suicide during that during that exam results period. And they looked at it and analyzed and they realized that, you know, it was largely happening to people who either expected to pass and failed by a few marks or expected to get very high marks and got much less than what they had got. Hmm. And so, you know, Lakshmi mounted, uh, Lakshmi and her team really mounted a public campaign and uh, lobbied the government in Tamil Nadu, which then started, a, uh, started this uh, idea of supplementary exams. So that, you know, the month in which the results come out, uh, they hold us exam, a re-exam in a sense, which you can sit for and then, you, you know, either pass it or even improve your scores and uh, you can then continue ahead. Okay. And, and just that one step reduced the number of suicides over the last 10 years, the number of suicides in Chennai. Uh, where they've got some data for have come down by 50%. Now, in the last 10 years, the number of students taking the 10th and 12th board exams has doubled. Hmm. But suicides are down 50%. So that's a dramatic change that a small policy change in education uh, could reduce suicides by a dramatic number. Okay. Evidently, addressing suicides isn't just about mental health interventions. You know, I'm not at all suggesting that we don't need mental health interventions. Uh, but what I'm suggesting is that actually we also need interventions which are outside of mental health, uh, which uh, which will address suicides. And broadly to try and, uh, you know, the point I'm trying to make and get our community to understand is that suicides are not purely a health problem. They are a public health issue, fine. But the drivers of suicide are not primarily the health sector. Yes. Dr. Pitari, that brings me to what Divya Kandakuri, journalist and founder of Blue Dawn, talks about in the book. Uh, this is from the point of view of individuals from marginalized groups seeking mental health help and finding that there exists a big gap in the understanding that healthcare professionals have of the structural and systemic issues of caste, for instance, that have a direct impact on mental health. Uh, allow me to read from what she's written. 
When Sushant Singh Rajput's suicide happened, the whole country said it's nepotism. Everyone spoke about nepotism for those four or five months. But when Rohit Vemula died, people said he was depressed. When Payal Tadvi died, they said she was depressed. When Anita from Tamil Nadu died, people said she was depressed. When this one Rajput man dies, everyone started becoming progressive about mental health and said that suicides happen because of the system. But when people, when students from marginalized communities have been dying, everyone says that they died because they were depressed. When they can quote nepotism as a reason for suicide, how hard is it to quote casteism too as a reason for suicide? She goes on to talk about how so many therapists either seem unaware of the reality of caste oppression and how it manifests as trauma, or as in many cases, the therapists themselves are inherently casteist. I mean, look, you know, there's, there's a, the, the, unfortunately, the, the discussion on caste in our, in our society uh, has been uh, narrowed down and is only focused on reservations. Yes. You know, like, oh, that's the whole problem. Reservations and caste. You say caste and ask people to do a word association test, which is like if I say caste and say to you, give me a word, uh, the average person in the street or especially average professionals will only talk about reservations. Right. Um, so, you know, we've reduced the, the discourse of caste down to reservations rather than look upon it as a as a structural disability that is caused by our society and that, that reservations is actually attempting a treatment on that structural disability. So we start blaming the treatment for the problem, you know, uh, rather than actually addressing the problem. Mm. Uh, and, and look, it, there is enough data and more to show that <clears throat> whatever Divya is talking is actually true. Because uh, the vast majority of clinicians, uh, mental health professionals, doctors, nurses, psychi- psychologists, counselors, uh, do come from the Savarna community. Mm. You know, that there are you know, huge numbers of them. Uh, and and so they would have very little lived experience of experiencing caste discrimination. See, if you don't have, yeah, you know, imagine like it's like a white man in uh, the in the U.S. saying that I have never experienced racism. Well, a white man in the U.S. doesn't experience racism. Yes, uh, it's the black who or or the Asians who experience racism. So for a white man to glibly say, well, there is no racism. I have never. Nobody's ever made a racist remark to me. Um, and that's the equivalent that you get here, which is people say, oh, well, I've never have never heard any casteist remark. Nobody's kind of been, you know, nobody's ever talked any caste to me. Uh, now, in that sense, you have to belong to the Savarna community because you're privileged enough that caste is not a bother for you. Right. Look, we know that violence leads to suicide. We know that discrimination, uh, experiencing uh, discrimination, uh, had, does things, does negative things to your mental health and puts you at risk of depression and suicide. So why wouldn't caste discrimination and caste-based violence that is experienced by the DBA community not be the cause of suicides or mental health problems? Indeed. Uh, and there is more food for thought that Divya Kandukuri provides in the book, as do you, Dr. Pathare, and your co-authors, Dr. Abhijit Nadkarni and Amrita Tripathi. Uh, I do appreciate you taking the time to speak to us, Doc. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.